All right, this is uh, really part two of a, of a shear that we're doing on methodology, but it's a different sort of methodology. So I want to speak for a couple of minutes about methodology and what that means. When we talk about the methodology of Gemara, we really are referring to one of at least three different things. One of them is something that I constantly bring in as side points in the shiur, but we've never made it a topic of a shiur, nor I don't know that if it really deserves that, which is sort of how the Gemara was put together, the process of compilation and editing, et cetera, um, which is something that is still being researched and discussed and published about. That's one. Another piece of methodology, which we have spent a lot of time with, especially in the last few months, is the methodology of how to read a Gemara, meaning how to identify different parts of an argument and parse them out, which I think is vital, and we're going to continue with that. A third piece of methodology is sort of the methodology of the logic, meaning once you've gotten the words together, the question is, what is the logical system that is used by the Gemara to wend its way through different arguments and arrive at different conclusions? And so today we're going to focus on that part a little bit more, all, but always keeping an eye on the language. And of course, I'll continue to throw in things about, from whatever I do know, about how the Gemara was compiled and the contributions um, um, to it and the different eras and, and locations to whatever extent we know. Okay, that said, we're going to go over material that we saw in the, pre, in the most recent dive uh, which is the Mishnah that we studied in the Daf today, and that is the Sugya of Dayo. So to remind you, I don't want to belabor this, to remind you, the jumping off point is Shoram Mazik Bershut And just to remind you again, the entire second parak is an expansion of one Mishnah in the first parak. This is somewhat unique. The Mishnah in the first parak says, Chamisha Tamin V'chamisha Muadin, and it really gives a very imbalanced five and five. You know, when you have five of this and five of that, you expect it to be something of a matched set. It's not. The five that are tamin are all Karen and all the subsets of Karen and the idea is that a shore is not muad to kick or to jump, et cetera, et cetera. The five muadin are, first of all, shore muad, which is those five things when they've been done several times. We're going to get into the details later of how frequency and, and can you combine different toldot, but that details. And then there's um, Adam is on the list. And then there's Shane and Regal, which are also Muad. And then Shor HaMazik Hanizak. That's called Muad, which means that the, the way we're reading it is that the presentation of the Torah which is to describe an ox that offend that, that attacks for the first time. It's certainly offending too. That, that attacks for the first time, uh, which we call a short time, that the result and the consequence is that the owner and the owner of the and the victim, as it were, split the the loss. And you sell the offending animal and you sell the uh the novella of the dead animal or the, the one that's been injured, and you split the proceeds of both of them. Something like that, Chatzinazik. But Shorhamuad, we're saying is Shorhamazik Rashutanizak, which, by the way, if you stop and think about that phrase, there's something a little strange because the word Muad means attested to. And Muad can happen in one of two ways. And now this is a little bit of the methodology in the background. 
which is Muad can happen because there's been an attestation about this particular ox and this particular behavior and say this ox is not jumping ox. It jumped on another ox yesterday and jumped on another ox the day before, jumped on another ox today. And there's testimony in Beitim. So this is an attested ox. That's Shor Muad. But when we say that Regel is Muad, that's because, not because this particular animal has walked on things and we've attested to it. It's because animals walk on things and animals eat things. In other words, that's just the way that they are. Which means that our starting point, really, with anybody is muad, and not muad in the sense of a dut formal testimony, but common knowledge. And by the way, common knowledge then devolves on the owner and saying, since you know that your animal is going to eat stuff, then don't take him in the neighbor's yard. And if you do, you're responsible for everything he eats. There we go. That's easy. Which puts our line in a strange place because the Mishnah says back in Parak Aleph, among the list of Muadin, Shor Hamazik Birshutanizak. Now, that's strange. Are you telling me that an ox attacking another ox in the street is something unanticipable, unanticipable, that's not a word, unable to be anticipated? and something that the owner of the offending ox really could not know in advance, and therefore he only has to pay half. But if you come into the backyard of the victim for the for your animal to rear down its horns and jump at the other one, that's an, that's something you can anticipate, and you're high of so it's, it's kind of strange. So why are we calling it Muad? So the answer is we're not calling it Muad because of an actual... Um, uh, observation about the animal. We're just saying it's in the category of muad because it has to pay full damage. <clears throat> in other words, that my bringing my animal into your backyard already puts me behind the eight ball, and therefore anything it does, Shane and Ragel, but also Karen, I'm going to have to pay full damage. And that, of course, as we said, is following the thinking of Rabbi Tarfon. So here we go. Okay, and now, the five told out of Karen. Which, by the way, right away tells you that the Mishnah in the first parak, where Shor Hamazik Bershutanizak was listed among the category of Muadim, is authored by the school of Rabbi Tarfon. Because Shor HaMazik Nizak in the world of Chachamim is no different than Shor HaMazik Rabim in any way. Okay? And then we get the backstory to the conversation between Bitarfon and the Chachamim. And we've already seen it a few times, so I'll just quickly in English sum it up. Rabbi Tarfon makes the following argument. That Shane and Regel are, that Rishut Rabim is, is a more lenient place than Rishut HaNizak. Something that in, in, instinctively we all understand. And that is that you causing damage in the public domain is less egregious than you causing damage in the victim's property. What are you doing there? And therefore, we see that from Shane and Regal. Shane and Regal in the public, you're totally off the hook. Shane and Regal in the victim's property, you're totally full compensation you have to pay. So therefore, if Karen, which is clearly more severe because even in the public you have to pay half, Certainly, in the victim's property, you would have to pay full. And so it's a very good kavachomer. 
the Rabbanan's response, in which they say we maintain the half, the Chatzin Ezek payment, even in Rashut Nizak, is based on the rule of Dayo. And we saw Dayo last time, Dayo Labamin Adin Leon the great limiter of Kalva Chomer, which is that the Chomer can't go more than the Kal, it can just be as much as the Kal. And since the Kal, which is uh, Rashut Rabim, is Chatzin Ezek, the Chomer, which is Rashut Nizak, is no more than, no less than Chatzin Ezek, but not anymore either. That's the way they said it. So then, Rabbi Tarfon said, well, I'll take the same information and I'll just twist it around and look at it from a different perspective. Because remember, as I showed last time in the, with the chart, every Kalvachomer is built, built upon four corners, three of which are known. Three pieces of information are known. And then you're aiming at the fourth. But if you remember the box from last time, you can get to the fourth from two directions. And so, depending which direction, might make it a more compelling or less compelling argument. So he says, I'm not comparing Karen to Karen, meaning Karen and Rashut Abim and Karen and Rashut Nizak. I'm going to rather look just at Rashut Nizak and Karen from Regal, which is Shane and Regal in public or Patur, but nonetheless, Karen is Hamur in Rashut Nizak, where Shane and Regal are, you have to pay full. Certainly, we should be machmir and pay full for Karen in Rashut HaNizak. And they answered again the same thing, Dayo. So that's the, the Mishnah. Now, this is the part, and we looked at it this morning. I'm not, I'm not going to belabor this part too much because we did look at it this morning. But still, pro forma, we really do need to look at it, and we'll take it apart a little bit more. Rabbi Tarfon Leitle Dayo. In other words, our, our opening question is the opening salvo of the Gemara is, doesn't Rabbi Tarfon agree that the limitation of Dayo is an essentialist component of the Kalvachomer system? Now, I'll explain what I mean by those words. Is you can create infinite amount of logical systems, potentially, in which you use different tools of derivation to expand your knowledge base, starting with premises that we accept, and using this, that, or the other combination of, um, of formulae to arrive at a, at, a, uh, at a result. And if, on the other hand, built into your formula is a limiter, then you're, you're held back by that, right? Um, so the question is, doesn't Rabbi Tarfon agree that built into the system of Kalvachomer is the limiter of Dayo? You understand what I'm saying? Not just that Dayo is some sort of a rule. Is that Dayo is an essential limiter on Kalvachomer. And so the question is, does he not agree that Dayo is that is that way? Dayo Now, we, we went quickly over that. We kind of glided through that this morning. So I want to clarify. What does that mean, Dayo is Da'oraita? What does it mean, Dayo Da'oraita? It means that, and it's in the context here, what it means is that the limiter of Dayo is something that's already found in the Torah explicitly in halachic context. In other words, we're not saying that the, the notion of Dayo is used in some sort of, uh, you know, we have all sorts of Kalva Chomers, by the way, uh, um, in, in, uh, in Torah, in narrative, Right? Uh, Yosef, Yaakov says to Yosef, 
before he gives him the bracha, he says, I didn't even think I'd see you alive. And here I see your kids. That's a kavachomer, right? So it, that's, but that's in, in, that's in rhetoric, but not in law. That's not, that's not a kavachomer that's, that's deriving new information. That's just expressing a certain feeling. How much happier I am now that I not only see you alive, that I didn't expect that I even see your kids. But in a legal formulation, we find the Torah telling us what to do and using a kavachomer argument to get there. And here we go. Remember, we saw that the bright of Rabbi Shmael, which is way longer than what we say in Shoal, but that's in the Sidurim, the bright of Rabbi Shmael starts off with a list of 13 rules of derivation, but then gives explicit examples from the Torah of each one of them, so you understand what it means. And the very first one is, of course, the Kalvachomer is number one. So the beginning of section two of the Brighto, which gives the examples, is Midin Kalvachomer Ketzad. How does Kalvachomer work? And right away, the example they give is a Kalvachomer with a Dayo, which is That's the Pasuk, that's part of the Pasuk, where Hashem says to Moshe, after Miriam turned into a Mitzorat, her skin became white, and she became she has Tarat, and the question is now what to do. And Hashem says to Moshe, after all, had her father spit at her, meaning kind of declared her to be, um, you know, non grata, then for seven days she would be disfavored. Now, the, the wording here is very unclear because clearly there was some social norm that they were familiar with in the times of the Torah that if a father um, uh, disgraced his daughter, that she would be in sh in some sort of shameful state for seven days. All right, that must be what it was. And so, remember, in this case, she wasn't shamed by her father, who's not alive anymore. She was shamed by God. And so the assumption here is, which means, look at the pasuk. What is Hashem saying to Moshe? Saying thing. Hashem saying, look, if her father, I'm going to say, I'm going to have Hashem's voice talk, talk like, uh, you know, your third grade rabbi. If I, if her father had only shamed her, had shamed her, she'd be disgraced for seven days. How much more so if HaKadosh Baruch Hu shames her that she should be disgraced for more than that? 14 days, twice as much, right? Which really is spectacular because it means in the first presentation of what a Kalvachomer is anywhere in the world, Dayo is already used as a ballast, as a as a as a balance to it, if you will, right? Which means that we assume everybody's got to be on the page with Dayo. Okay, that's in other words, we're 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 assuming now that everybody agrees that Dayo is a limiter. So what we propose is And now again, this morning we went over this quickly. I want to think about what the thinking underneath this line is. When does he not accept Dayo? That's when the Kalvachomer itself falls apart. What does that mean? That means that if you use Dayo as a limiter, and the result of that is that your Kalvachomer accomplished nothing, then he will say Dayo can't be there. Now, what's the thinking behind that? The thinking is that the Kalvachomer that's presented is presented for a reason. Now, the Kalvachomer, by the way, can be explicit as it is here. Most Kalvachomer 
formulae are not explicit. This one's explicit. The Torah says, if it was only your father, and we know it's really God, so there's a Kavachomer that's explicit in the text. But most Kavachomers are not. Most Kavachomers are built on the idea that here's one area of halacha where the broad area is, I'll give an example, uh, Tumat uh, Sheretz. Tumat Sheretz can never be more than Tumat Arab. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter if you eat the sherets, if you sit on the sherets, sleep with it, it doesn't matter what you do. The, the most you can be is Tame is one day. Tumat Meit, on the other hand, is seven days, right? All right. So right away, we have a system where we know Tumat Sheretz is less severe than Tumat Meit. Okay, easy. So that means that if we find that Tumat Sheretz has a particular stringency, then how much more so that same stringency should apply to Tumat Meit. Okay. But isn't there, Rabbi, isn't there an underlying understanding here uh, about Dayo that that the, the essence is we don't know the multiplier. We don't know if 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 you could increase it more, how much? There's no we have no basis right. for, for deciding Agreed. that. So I mean, that's Baruch Hu says twice as much, but it could be ten times as much. So, so if exactly. there's something no. on that, then you know, then we should leave it alone. Right. So Sher Sherwin underscores what the what the essential difficulty of taking a homer anywhere past the call is, and that was the example I gave you guys last time with the catcher who uh, was lobbying for a, for a contract, right? Is that you don't know how much more it could be. All you know is it could be no less than the, the than the call. Correct. So where did Rabbi Tarfon come from? The answer is Rabbi Tarfon came from a different place because Rabbi Tarfon, what did he, what was the bottom line is that Karen Bershutanizak is Nezak Shalem. That's where the was getting to. Now, there he actually has a model because Shane Bershutanizak is Nezak Shalem. There we don't have the problem of the multiplier. There it's it's already written. And the question is when I have Karen over here in Rashutarabim, what do I do when it goes into Rashutanizak? Do I say, well, it's still Karen, so it's Hatzinezak, or do I say, well, it's Rashutanizak and that's Nezak Shalem? Think about this. All the Karen that I know is always Chatzinezek until, until proven otherwise. And all Shane that I know, wherever you pay, is full. So what's Karen Bershut Nizak more like? Is it like other things Bershut Nizak that play full? Or is it Karen is Karen is Karen, and therefore it's Chatzinezek? So now when I, when I do have an, a, a, the potential for a multiplier, and I can go this way or that way, and now I could say either Chatzinezek or Nezek Shalim, and both of them have an anchor, unlike the 7 and 14 days, then a dio is going to limit me and say, take the smaller amount. That, that's what dio, that's what Chachamim do with dio. Right, right. You're right. Essentially, and in the what the Breite here says with the example from Miriam, is that you don't know how far to take it. 14, might be 14 days. Why not 7,000 days? Right? So you're right. But here, the, the notion is that, and the, the argument is that if you use Dio and the result of it is that your Kavachomer is now meaningless, or shall we say impotent, it doesn't accomplish anything, then we're going to ignore Dio because the Kavachomer is there for a reason. So let me just explain the thinking behind that, and then we'll take a look at the text. Because again, this is this shear is methodology heavy in the sense of the third methodology I pointed out, meaning the, the, the logical system of the Gemara, is what we're saying is as follows. If the Torah allows us 
Akalva Chomer by presenting two areas of halacha, one which is more severe than the other, and tells us some halachot about the less severe one, let's say some stringencies about the less severe one, or some leniencies about the more severe one, it's inviting us to then connect and say, well, if in the more severe area this is permitted, then certainly in the less severe area it's permitted, or vice versa. And so now you're going to say, but I cannot, um, I'm, that has to be useful and meaningful. If I have a built-in limiter called Dio, which in this particular case is going to make it useless, the Kavachomer doesn't accomplish anything, then Dio's got to take a beating. Because I can't have Dio totally strangle the Kavachomer. So now let's see how it plays out here. All right. Um, meaning, since, um, um, in other words, Rabbi Tarfon will agree in the case of the Miriam, because he says, think about this. I can still have my Kalvachomer do something and still use Dio effectively, and everybody's at, everybody's at peace. Dio is sitting at the table, Kalvachomer is sitting at the table, having a beautiful meal together. Nobody's gotten thrown out. Because the Torah doesn't say anything about, um, about even seven days of being disgraced uh, because God, uh, you know, excommunicated you. So therefore, meaning the original Kavachomer goes from zero to 14. So the Dio comes and limits it and says seven, meaning seven was never there. So in other words, Rabbi Tarfon will agree with this Braita right here. And the Dio works because he'll say as follows. I can still have the Kalvachomer accomplish something, which is to take being disgraced by God, go from zero to seven. Theoretically, it could take me further than seven, and Dio limits it back to seven. Right? But in the case of Karen, what does the Torah already say? You pay half damage. So what does the Kalvachomer do? It has to add something. It adds the other half. Becomes full payment. Okay? So, so um, the uh, the Dio would totally disrupt the Kalvachomer. The Kalvachomer would accomplish nothing. We'd still be back at Chatzinezek, which I didn't need a Kalvachomer for. So you can turn around and say, so you don't have a Kalvachomer. What does it bother you? The answer is the Torah has given us tremendous leeway to expand our knowledge base and therefore our base of halakha using derivations. And therefore, if it opened things up in such a way that the kalvachomer is viable, then we have to keep it alive. And if dio is going to kill it, then dio should be ignored. That's the principle. Okay? Now, how does that play out in, in our sugya? Because in our sugya, the Rabbanan employed dio. And so you could be Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Tarfon, turn around and say, well, if you put Dio, then a Kavachomer means nothing. So the answer may be that everything that I just said may be just Rabbi Tarfon's position. Maybe Chachamim have a different position on it, which is maybe they say that Dio always is there because of Sherwin's point. Because Dio is an, is an unavoidable limiter of Kavachomer because you don't know how far to go. And here we go. 
Rabbanan Shiva Dishinaktivi, just like your Shiva Yamim. What does that mean? That means that according to the Rabbanan, the fact that you would have to be excommunicated, uh, uh, disgraced by God for seven days is written in the Pasuk. Because what does the full Pasuk say? If her father had disgraced her, she'd be excommunicated for seven days. She would be in quarantine for seven days. Why had that line? It's the same thing as the previous line. The answer is that's referring to the Shekhinah, saying clearly if her father or God were to disgrace her, she'd be in uh, I had to call it would she be in uh, in in quarantine or something in 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 um, out of the camp for seven days, which means therefore the seven days of the Shekhinah are already written in. Which means Rabbanan's position, as we think of it, is that Dayo is accepted even when it means the Kalva Homer is now powerless. And that's the point of the contention. Okay? So Rabbi Tarfon, Hahu Tisager Dashin Dayohu. Rabbi Tarfon says, no, Tisager is not there to say that the, for the Shechina it's seven days and now that's written and you're not getting a Kalva Homer. Tisager is there to tell you the principle of Dayo here. In other words, if her father excommunicated her, she would be disgraced for seven days. And for the Shechina, no less than seven days. Okay, Dayo. And we get there by we get to to the exclusion, to the excommunication at all via Dayo, via Kavachomer, and the Dayo limits it to seven. So Rabbanan, ping pong. In the next pasuk, it says she was in in uh, in quarantine for seven days. So you so you see explicitly that seven days is right there in the text, and therefore the only thing the Kavachomer would have gotten you is more than seven. And Dio shut that down, which means we're willing to accept Dio even when it shuts down the Kavachomer. And therefore, in our case, Rabban are willing to say. I got Chatzinezek. You want to use a Kavachomer to build a Tenezek Shalem, but you're getting it from Karen, and therefore it can't be any better than Karen and Rashid Rabim. Keep it a Chatzinezek. You mean your Kavachomer didn't accomplish anything? Cry over spilt milk. Too bad. Right? So Ritarfon says the second Pasuk is there to tell me that not only do we apply Dio here, we apply Dio everywhere. Why? Why would I think the here is unique? Don't think that the reason here that we're applying Dio is because Kavod Moshe. Right? In other words, Kavodosh um, Moshe can go twist both ways. It can be that it was Moshe that they were speaking badly about, right. and maybe it should be increased, but you could say the, the opposite, which is Moshe asked God to heal her, and she is Moshe's sister, and therefore, maybe here we limit it to seven days, but maybe generally we wouldn't apply Dio. Kamash Malan, the Dio is all over the place. Okay. So at where the sugya ends there is the following. It's a, it, the, the principle that comes out is that, um, that we always will employ, employ the limitation of Dio, Rabbi Tarfun will say, as long as it will give breathing room for the Kalvachomer to accomplish something. And Rabbanan's position is, no, Dio is inherently built in, and uh, and when, if it kills a Kalvachomer, too bad. Rabbi, can I, can I be allowed to contradict myself? Sure. Um, 
I, earlier I said that we don't know what the multiplier would be. This would be Rabbi Tarfon's uh, svara. But in actuality, we have two dugmot here that the actual multiplier is two. From the, uh, the, because we have, we have from chatzin nezek to full nezek, that's double. Right. We have from seven days to 14 days, that's double. Good. Now somebody, so that's, somebody yeah. challenge Sherwin on that. I hear what you're saying. I want to challenge you so that you're back to where you were before. I want you to save you from yourself. Sherwin's pointing out that both cases of Dio here involve multiples of two, either Chatzinezek to Fulnezek or seven days to 14 days. But are they really the same? Yeah, they do. No, it, it seems that one thing has nothing to do with the other. It's well, just coincidence. Explain. explain. So, good. So, explain yeah. why, why they don't have to do with each other. <laughs> that makes it even no, but Bill, Bill, Dafka, that makes it even stronger. That these kids, they're two kavachomers, nothing to do with each other, and yet the multiplier is two. Okay, so I'm so I'm, it could have been three, it could have been four, but it's not, it wasn't, three. it was two. Yes, yeah, oh, okay. okay. So Sherwin, Sherwin's making a good point. If indeed the two have nothing to do with each other and they just happen to both be two, that seems to indicate that we we instinctively feel that a kavachomer should make it twice as much, and Dio puts it down to nine. Right? I'll tell you why they're different. In the case of the uh, seven days, there is no model for tzarat outside of seven days. There's seven days a couple times, depending on, on uh, you know, the hesker and, and, and the hechleit could be for much longer for years, right, until you check. But there's no such thing as 14 days. 14 days is not a period. 14 days is not a period, too much, you'll let it, but, but uh, 14 days is not a period. In other words, when you say seven, it's a kavachomer, twice as much. But it, it could be arbitrary. That's not like our Mishnah. Our Mishnah is not arbitrary. It's not like saying, ooh, chatzinezek. What's a little more than chatzinezek? Nezek shalem. That's not what we're talking about. And this is the critical difference. And this is why this sugya is a little bit misleading in the way that it's addressing the Mishnah. Because the whole dio issue is dealing with an unknown, or should we say unprecedented, um, target. The unprecedented target is more than seven. 14, 21, a year, a lifetime. Whatever it is. All right, so 14, pick a name of a, a number out of a hat. Our Mishnah is not dealing with that at all. What is our Mishnah? What is Rabbi Tarfin trying to accomplish in our Mishnah? Determine Nezek. What? Determine how much Nezek is paid. Yeah, but what's he trying to, what's he arguing for? He's arguing that Karen Vershutanizak should be treated like what? Shane Vishut Mitzak. That's what he's saying. Yeah, which he's is not, full, right? What? Which is full. Which is full. Right. He's not arguing Karen Vishut Rabim is half. So Karen Vishut is actually more than half. What's more than half? Okay, full. Sounds good. Seven, 14, half, full. It's not the same. You understand the difference? We don't have a 14 anywhere. 14, we're reaching. We're just grabbing. It's a good example. When Rabbi Tarfut says Nezek Shalem, he's not saying more than half is full. He's saying, I have a model for full Nezek. The model for full Nezek is Shane. Hmm. And there's two different ways to get there. One way to get there is to say, Shane and Rishut Rabim, Shane is clearly less severe than Karen, because in Rishut Rabim, Shane pays nothing, Karen pays half. So therefore, if Shane, Rishut and Isaac pays full, Karen, which is more severe than Shane, should certainly pay full. And by the way, that's Dio, not more than full, not double, just full. Or the other way to say it is, which is more severe? Rishut Rabim or Rishut 
The answer is Shutanizak. So if you now here's where Dio comes in interestingly, if in Rashuta Rabim you pay half, Rashutanizak, you should pay more, that's full. And that's why they attack him, and that's why he turns it around and says, No, I'm not really violating Dio here. Because I'm not asking for some reaching number like 14. I'm simply saying it should be the same as Shane, which is full. Okay, so that again, why the this using the model from the Rabbi Shmuel Breita is a little bit odd. Now, watch what Rabbi Papa and Abaya, their conversation uh, goes. Actually, we're, we're going to skip this part. We did this this morning. But I want to take you to something later on that's going to be actually tomorrow's daf, which is so much fun. <clears throat> it's also part of the whole world of Kalachomer. And it takes us to an area of logic which we call reductio ad absurdum. The reductio ad absurdum, which is a, um, a challenge to an argument, is literally reducing it to the absurd. It's Latin, which is a, a, a proper methodology used all the time in the Gemara, um, in, we call it to prove something by its negation, but that's really weak. Reductio ad absurdum says it much, much better, which is to prove that a particular position is untenable because its logical conclusion is absurd. Now, let me ask you, what makes something absurd? If so it can't I'm, I'm going to borrow exist. for a minute. I'm going to borrow a page from some a totally different area of inquiry uh, and bring it back, and that is the Rambam's reading of of um, narrative text in Torah. The Rambam's position is that we read narrative text in the Torah literally, unless we can't. So when we read something in the Torah, we take it literally, unless we can't. What tells us that we can't and that we have to interpret it metaphorically, uh, limitedly, uh, whatever it is? Three different things. Nothing, number one, is if it goes against our experience, meaning human experience of what things look like, right? Second, if it goes against, this is the Rambam, that which has been demonstrated to be true through philosophy. So, for instance, the Rambam makes a big deal about this, is that when you read in the Torah, God's eyes, God's nose, God's nostrils, God's legs, etc., it must be read metaphorically, can't be read literally, because it contradicts what we have demonstrated philosophically, that God has no body. And the third one is, when you have, if you read something literally, and the result is that it would contradict another text. So, in other words, experience, philosophy, or other texts, right? So the, that's the Rambam's position in Morin Avuchim, that that's when you can't read things literally. Now, um, when, we, when we are trying to attack a particular kind of reasoning, one way to attack it is by showing that if that kind of reasoning were to be taken to its logical conclusion, you would end up with an absurdity. What's an absurdity? either something that goes against our own experience, which is not going to be true in a legal discussion, something which goes against um, uh, that which has been demonstrated philosophically, also not likely, I'll give you one exception, not likely to be found in a legal discussion, and that which goes against other texts, that will always be found in a legal discussion. In other words, 
I will show you that your your reasoning will lead to something that is the opposite of received law. And that's the exception I mentioned in philosophically. How do you know the validity of the other texts? Say it again? Why are you assuming that the other texts are valid? Oh, very good. Al asks a great question, which is, if I interpret text A, and text A literally runs up against a literal read of text B, so why am I reading text A and making it inferior and saying it has to take a backseat to text B, or vice versa? And if you recall, that's one. That's the, the last of the 13 midot of Rabbi Shmuel, shnei k'tuvim ha-machichim zed zed. What if I have two psukim that contradict each other? I don't know what to do until I find a third pasuk to sort of settle the, the, you know, tip the balance. You're right. And that's something that we engage with all the time in the Gemara, where we have conflicting rules coming from different psukim and how we reconcile them because we can't read them straight up. This, by the way, this, what I'm telling you now about reductio animates so much of the Gemara because so much of it is built on if you were right, then you'd end up with this ridiculous result. Now, again, what makes it ridiculous or absurd is, again, either going to be personal experience or, which, again, is not likely an illegal argument, but going against accepted codes will. So now, watch what I mean. Uh, all that introduction is, is odd absurdum. <laughs> let's, let's reductio my discussion, and let's, uh, let's take a look at how the Gemara does it. All right, here we go. And this is just so much fun. All right. Based on your thinking, Shane and Regal should now be Chayav and Rishut Rabim. Based on Kavachomer. You ready? Um, I already know the terms. Uma Karen After all, Rabbanan said, Karen, even in Rishut Anizak, only pays half. But Rishut Rabim Chayavet. Nevertheless, it's Chayav and Rishut Rabim, right? Correct? I mean, that's where we start from. Rishut Karen. In Rishut Nizak only pays half. And Rishut Rabim still is Chayav, half, of course. Rabbanan. Shane Varegel, Shirishut Nizak, Mashalim Nezak Shalem. Shane and Regel that paid Nezak Shalem in private property. In other words, what do we know? That Rishut Rabim and Rishut Nizak are equal in Karen. All right? Now, Shane Varegel is stronger than Karen, isn't it? Because in Rashut Nizak, based on Rabbanan, what do you pay for Karen? Chatzinezek. What do you pay for Shane Regel? Nezek Shalem. So Shane Regel is stronger than Karen. So if that's the case and you have to pay Chatzinezek for Karen mm -hmm. and Rabim, certainly you should pay something for Shane and Regel uh, in Rashut Rabim. We're not even saying how much. The reality is that you're Patur. So here we go. Why do we not follow this reasoning? Amar Krab, Ubi'er Bistayacher. The Pasuk about Shain and Regal are If he sends his grazers into a field of another. Not in public. In other words, the, the Pasuk directly guides us that Shain and Regal are in the victim's field only. Mire Kule Kamrinan. So the answer is, we're not arguing that you should pay full for Shane and Regal in Rashid Rabim. We're just saying pay something, pay half. So Amar Kra, the Chatsuat Kaspo. Where does it say the Chatsuat Kaspo? That's with Karen. When my animal attacks your animal out in the street, we say we split the money. 
Meaning that that what we're now reading is Chatzuot Kaspo is a limiter saying the rule of Chatzinezik only applies to Karen. Which means your attempt to make Shane and Regal be Chayavin or Shutar Abim fails if you're trying to get it to be Nezak Shalem because the Pasuk says Biyer And it fails if you're trying to get it to pay Chatzinezek because Chatzinezek is only in the domain of Karen. Now notice what happened here. We started by saying, let's play a little game. And let's try to use Kalvachomer logic to prove something which is ridiculous. Because we all know Shane and Regal is Paturbashit. Again, what makes it ridiculous, and Al, I'm kind of answering your question about what, what makes A stronger than B, is that we all know as a basic premise that Shane and Regal are Paturbashit or Abim. But I can use a Kalvachomer to prove to you the opposite. That is, Chayabashit or Abim. Right? And we knock it out, not inherently, we knock it out by using a pasuk. But not that the logic is flawed, but the pasuk runs up against it, which is exactly what a reductio gets, how a reductio gets smashed. In other words, I can use this kind of logic, and then you put your hand out and stop it. Right? Now, the next step is, Fine, let's turn it around. Shane and Regal, in the victim's property, you should only pay half. Again, Kalvachomer, why? Only still only pays half nezek in Rashut Hayachid. That is Chachamim, not Rabbi Tarfon. Shane Varegel, Shushut Abim Ptura, Shane Varegel are totally exempt in Rashut Abim. And this is totally dial. Because if I wanted to really push this one, I could have said the following. Karen, which is Chayav and Rishut Rabim, still only pays half in Rishut HaNizak. Shane Varegel that are exempt in Rishut Rabim should be exempt in Rishut HaNizak. Full, fully, but I'm not, I don't want to go that far. So you only should pay half. Right? Does everybody see what the logic is? You all follow it? Mm-hmm. So now, I'll, I'll repeat it to make it clear. If Karen, which is Chayav something, in Rishut Rabim still only pays half Nezek, even in Rishut HaNizak, Shane and Regal, that are totally exempt in public, should certainly pay no more than half in Rishut HaNizak, and yet they pay full. Right. And the reductive, the absurdum is, well, we know they pay full. The answer is, I'm not crying, Yishalem. Right? Metav Sadeh, Metav Kamo Yishalem, which is about Shane and Regal, Tashlumin Maila, meaning Malia, meaning proper payment. Proper payment is full. Okay, now we turn it around. Maybe Karen shouldn't be Chayav and Rishut Rabim at all. By the way, which is exactly the case the Torah talks about. It's Karen Rishut Rabim. And here's the Kavachomer. After all, Shane and Regal in the victim's property pay full. And Rishut Rabim totally patur. So Karen Rishut Rabim Chatzin Nezek. Karen, that you do have to pay only half in Rishut Yachid, and if Rishut Rabim Pturai should be so totally exempt in Rishut Rabim. Amar Biyochan, Amar Kray Yechetzun. Right now, this is a very interesting drasha, because says the Chatzu Machruot Ashor Achav Chatzuot Kaspo. They sell the living, the aggressor, and and divide it. The Gamat Hamet Yechetzun. They also sell the carcass 
of the one that got killed, and they split that. And the drasha is ein chatzinezek chaluk, meaning the principle of paying half is not distinguished lo meaning we don't distinguish. And therefore we say, just like Karen in Rishuta Nizak um, is you pay half, so Karen should have even pay half, and we don't say you're off the hook. Now, what have you noticed, by the way, is the pattern in every one of these sets? How does it start off? Because we're not done, but how does it start off? It proposes something which is ridiculous. And then it gives very solid arguments using proper form and proper premise to lead to that ridiculous conclusion. And the, and the answer in each case is there is a pasuk that blocks it. You notice that? Everyone's into the pasuk. Meaning your logic is good, but your logic has to take a back seat to Zerat HaKatuv. The Torah said no. Now, of course, the logic is good within the very rarefied air of the confines of the logic. Put it, test it out in the real world, it wouldn't work. But that's not what we're concerned with. We're in the lab tonight. Now, you ready for this? Now, what's kof? Kofer, which we dealt with a little bit in the first parak, we'll get to later on, is if a, an animal is muad and kills somebody. An animal is violent, has a tendency. You didn't watch it, an animal killed somebody. What does the Torah say? The animal has to be killed. The owner has to die also. Not really, but the owner has to die. And then, in kofer, you shot if there's a kofer, which means like a ransom payment that's assessed that the owner of the of the offending animal, the killing animal, uh, has to pay, then that he can pay his way out. In other words, that's how you buy out your life, as it were. You ransom yourself. So say, so maybe Adam should be chayiv and kofer um, when you hurt somebody, meaning when you kill somebody. So besides getting killed, you pay kofer. We never heard of such a thing. Here's the Kabachomer. It's great. Uma By the way, if an ox attacks a person, does the owner have to pay owner? I mean, the ox not going to pay for anything. Does the owner of the ox have to pay for medical bills? No. I think so. Does the ox the does the owner have to pay for lost wages? No. No, okay. Does he have to pay for a shame? No. He has to pay Nezek. And he has to pay, depending what happens to the guy, but he has to pay Nezek. In other words, the, the whole notion of the five-fold payment for battery and assault is only if a person hurts a person. So now, sure, but if my ox kills somebody, I have to pay Kofar. Adam you see the see the Kabachomer? Who's got more liability? Me or my ox? The answer is easy, me. And the best way to see that is that if I hurt somebody, I got all sorts of payments to make. I'm responsible for his lost wages and medical, etc. So how much more so I should pay Kofer? Right? And so the answer is again a pasuk. Whatever the Beitin assesses on him, him meaning the animal that killed the person. Allah, velo al-adam. It doesn't apply to a person hurting a person or killing a person. Okay, now let's turn it around. 
And this is fun. I'm sorry, I find this whole thing fun. I feel like I'm, I was always in school. I'm always helping to say this. Guys, this is so much fun, this Ramban. After 40 minutes, I said, what was the, where was the fun? I missed it. Right. Meaning, if my ox attacks a person, maybe I have to pay for lost wages, etc. And what's the Kavachomer? Just turn what we just said around. If I hit, kill somebody, I don't have to pay Kofar. I might be killed, but I don't pay Kofar. But I, if I hurt somebody, I have to pay the five-fold uh, payments. Sure, sure, it does have to pay Kofar. Certainly, it does have to pay a So, meaning, if a man hurts another man, then the payments kick in. And not if a Knox kills it, it's a person. Now, what have you said? This is the whole system. I'm going to show you now a, a, to end this really fun tangent. But what have you seen in all five of these? There's all the exact same pattern. Always gets knocked out by a puzzle. Right. And how and 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 how does it start out? And that's how it ends. How does it start out? Each one of them. Note the opening word in everyone, either tehe or lote. Right? Say it again. I'm sorry. Notice that the, each one of these paragraphs starts with either the word utehe or the words velotehe, right? So literally it means let it be the case that, but what we're really saying is, why isn't this the case? After all, Kavachomer would get us to this bizarre place. The chain of irregulars is um, or the Karen's not chayav at all, or whatever, right? And, and the way we've done this is by cleverly manipulating the information that we have. Each area of Nezek has its own contours and its own parameters. So we saw in Dafe, <clears throat> right? Boar is only Rishut Rabim, Shen is only Rishut Nizak, etc. right? Karen has Tom and Muad. Everything has its own parameters. And what we've done is we've kind of cleverly ignored them and tried to Compare, uh, you know, um, like apples and screwdrivers, here, and put them put them in such a way that they seem. It's almost like a magician with the misdirection. They seem to be in the same world, and then you can end up proving something which is, which is wrong. And our the way that we always lean on it is, we have a pasuk. Now notice the for, the form of the kavachomer. Do you see it? I color coded and everything. All right, same color coding throughout. Karen is more lenient in Rashuta Nizak, right? It is more and and in Rashuta Rabim more stringent. We're looking at it that way. Shane Varegel that pay full in Rashuta Nizak should certainly pay in Rashuta Rabim, right? Every one of them. Look at him there. There you go. Okay. Um, good. Now I want to show you this for, for just to finish things off, but I want to show you that this series that we just saw that was in the Gemara is actually, um, you can see the same sort of thing happen in a Mishnah Masach Pesachim. Nothing to do with our topic, but way too much fun. <clears throat> and it takes us to a machloka between a Rebbe and a student. And by the way, this is unlike what we just saw because the whole system that we just saw operated with premises that we all accept. 
We all accept chain and regular only chayv neshuta yachid nezek shalem neshuta bim patur. We all agreed that uh, Karen is chayav neshuta rabim. We all agreed that Adam is only chayav and abadvarim and Shor is only chayav and kofer, etc. We all agree to that, and now we try to say, ah, I'll prove that you're wrong. I'll prove that the entire system is wrong based on a kavachom. And the answer is we have a pasuk. But this is a real machloket. You ready? Right, this is the famous first Mishnah in Parakvav of Sachim. You may recall a couple of years ago, we looked at the Gemara here, which is the story of Hillel, and how Hillel ascended to the head of the Sanhedrin when he proved that you bring Korban Pesach on Shabbat. In any case, the following things are done on Pesach in violation of Shabbat, meaning when Pesach is on Shabbat. By the way, when I say Pesach, what date do I mean? What day is Pesach? What? 14th. 14th. 14th, right? The day of the Quran Pesach. Meaning, all the things associated with the Quran that must be done the day of the Quran. You can't check it a day in advance. You can't do the Dhamma day in advance. You got to do it then. Aval. Sliato vadachat krevav. Roasting it or cleaning out the kishkas. What about carrying the Korban Pesach from outside the Tchum? Or if it has a Yabelet, a Yabelet is a form of a, of a temporary mum. And if you cut it off, it's not a Bal Mum anymore. Cutting it off, those things you can't do on Shabbat. Aha. That means you've got, at this point, a silent voice in the Mishnah saying, what is Doche Shabbat is only those things that must be done on that day, nothing else. And Rebbe Lezer says, no, you could violate Shabbat even to do things that could have been done the day before. Right, now, here's, now we're going to hear the, the, uh, the back and forth. Amar Rabbi Eliezer. By the way, it's rare for Mishnah to be this uh, revealing, if you will. You ready? Think about this. You all agree that we do Shech Shechita V'Korban Pesach on Shabbat. And Shechita is a Malacha, an Av Malacha. It's one of the 39. And yet you do it on Shabbat. Cutting off the Abelet is a Shvut. It's a Durabanan. So you see his Kavachomer? If I'm allowed to do actual shechita on an animal on Shabbat, because today is the 14th of Nisan, then Kalbachomer, I can do something which is only Nisan to Rabbanan on Shabbat for the Korban Pesach. So Amr lo Rabbi Yeshua, who speaks up to defend the Mishnah? Rabbi Yeshua. Here we are in Yavne, end of the first century. Yom Tov Yochiach, right? What's that? She tirvo mishum mishum shvut. said, think about this. On Yom Tov, you're allowed to cook, right? You're allowed to cook. You're allowed to do things that otherwise are an isidoraita, but for, for Ochonefesh, you could do it. And yet you still can't do a shvut, which means yom to, you see that there are times when the Torah permits an isa, what's otherwise an isidoraita, and still the halacha doesn't permit a shvut. Amar lo rebeliezer, maza Yoshua. It's, it's really very nice, this familiarity. What kind of Yeshua? What are you talking about? In other words, cooking on Yom Tov is a reshut. You want to cook, you can cook. 
But here there's a mitzvah, you have to do the Korban Pesach. And by the way, if the Torah limits the shvut that you can do on Yom Tov, it's limiting shvutim in areas that you couldn't, you know, you don't have to do. But here you need to have a Korban Pesach. Let's say the only Korban Pesach we have suddenly has a Yabelet. Why can't you cut it off on Yom Tov? On Shabbos, sorry. Heshiv Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a student of both there, speaks up. What's Hazayah? <coughs> it's sprinkling the Mechatat, third and seventh day, to become Tahor. Watch this. Meaning, it's necessary for you to be able to participate in the Korban Pesach. Let's say you became Tmei Mate on the, eighth, on the uh, seventh of Nisan. So, that, so on the eighth, let's say. So then on the tenth, and then on the fourteenth, you're going to get spritzed, right? Let's say the 14th comes out on Shabbat. What's the prohibition of Hazaan Shabbat? Meaning, let's say that you became Tmei Mate on, on a Sunday. You went to a Sunday funeral. So on Tuesday, you do Mechatat. Now on Shabbat, you want to do Mechatat and become Tahor. You can't do it. It's a Shvut. It's a Durabanan. So let's say that somebody's seventh day of Tuma comes out on Shabbat, and that's the day of the Korban Pesach. If we allow him to do Hazai, he can do the Korban Pesach. It's a shvut, not to, it's a shvut that prohibits him. If we allow him to do the Hazai, then he can do the Korban Pesach. If we don't allow him to do the Hazai, he can't. And yet we don't. So you see, even a shvut takes a back seat, even though Shechita, which is the right, which is a Malacha, doesn't take a back seat. So Afata al Titma al Elu. So don't be so surprised about cutting off the Abel and everything. So now, this is what I want to get you to. Rabbi Lezer says, that's exactly where I was going. You fell right into the trap. Which is, In other words, has got a campaign going here. He's trying to say, we should allow Hazaa on Shabbat if that's the day of Pesach, to let somebody eat Pesach. You know, it's, he's trying to argue for a position we hold as Asur. In other words, unlike our Gemara, which started with, we all know what the law is, now let's have some fun with it, Rebbe Leezer is actually challenging the accepted law based on Kalvachomer. If we're allowed to do Shechita, which is an Av, certainly a Shvut should be allowed. Amala Rabbi Kiva, Chiluf. Rabbi Kiva says, you will do that. Here's where reductio comes. Here's the absurdum. Then just use your kavachomer, turn it inside out. By the way, every kavachomer can be turned inside out. Think about it. So a chiluf. Shavikiva says, fine. Then I'll take the same reasoning and turn it inside out. If hazaa, which we agree, I think cannot be done on Shabbat, and it's only a Durabanan, certainly Shechita, which is Doraita, can't be done on Shabbat, which, by the way, we all agree is not true. You do the Shechita of a Korban Bezach. Amarlo Rabbi Elezer, Akiva. I love it when they... Akiva. Akarta Mashikatub, Ben Arbaim, Moado. If you do that, then you're going to violate what the Torah says, which is, Ben Bechol, Ben Shabbat. You have to bring the Korban Pesach on the 14th in the afternoon, whatever day it is, Chol Shabbat. In other words, your reasoning leads to an absurdity, which is 
Your kalvachomer from Hazaa will lead to the absurdity of no korban Pesach when it falls on Shabbat. Amarlo haveli moed la'elu kamoed lishchita. So Rabbi Kiva's answer is, okay, so please show me that there is a set time for hazaah or cutting off the abelet or any of those other things like there is for shechita. Rabbi Akiva led Rabbi Yezer down the road and then slammed the trap door on him. It was beautiful. Because what did he do? He said, okay, you're arguing that hazaah should be mutar based on kabachomer, very much like ours. I'm going to argue the opposite based on your same kabachomer, turn it inside out and say, shechita's aser. If you can't do a shud, you certainly can't do an avmalacha. So what does it say? If you do that, then you have violated what the Torah says. Remember, it all comes down to the psukim at the end. You violate what the Torah says, which is, you have to bring the Korban Pesach b'mo'ado, and it's time. So Rabbi Kiva says, fine, then please find me a mo'ed, a set time for cutting off the abelot or doing hazah. There is none, because you could do it the day before. Hazah you can't do, that's a tangential thing. That's the problem when you went to a funeral. That's not built in. Which leads to this very famous following statement, which shows up several times in the Mishnah, including in Shabbat. Call Amar Rabbi Akiva. What's his rule? Kol Shabbat. Right? Any malacha that could be done Erev Shabbat, you can't do on Shabbat. Therefore, bringing the animal, cutting off its yabalit, right? But shechita that can't be done on Erev Shabbat is docha. Now notice how Rabbi Kiva got there. Rabbi Kiva got there by saying, what does the Torah say? The Torah says, You have to do the Korban Pesach in its time. And therefore, those things which demand, which means, by the way, all the Kavachomer logic, very nice. In the end, it sits on the side, and what drives us is the Psukim. The Torah says you have to bring Korban Pesach on the 14th. Come hell or high water. Shabbat or not. The other things, don't violate Shabbat for them. There's something you should have taken care of at a different time. What we saw over the course of this shiur today was we went back to our original Mishnah and discussed how Dayo worked and then looked into the Gemara and saw how Rabbi Tarfon and the Chachamim um, seemed to to dance with the issue of Dayo and the potential destruction of a Kavachomer and whether Dayo would still be utilized even if it would totally destroy the Kavachomer and what the thinking behind that is. And then we saw as the second half of the Shi'ur the whole, the whole series of reductio arguments that show essentially that a Kavachomer is only good until it runs up against the Pasuk that knocks it down. And that's what happened in all these cases. And then we ended by looking at a somewhat parallel sugya in the first uh, five, six Mishnayot to the sixth parak of Sachim, where again, we did the same thing and took the information we had and moved it in this direction and that direction, showing that you could end up, if you only used Kavachomer reasoning, you could end up with something that's patently absurd. And then the Pasuk comes to set the ship right and to tell us kind of where things should uh, should end up being.